clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Ots Tyrion podcast. Here I am, your co-host, Jordan Cruciola. I am your uh, second co-host, Sam Weinman. And Sam specifies second co-host because we have more than one co-host with us today in the office. This is a triple header, um, friends. It's a triple, it's a three-headed beast of 2000s horror. It is, uh, it is my friend, it is my, it is my beloved European crush. Uh, Anna, introduce yourself to the friends at home. Hello! <laughs> Hello! I did not realize I was being promoted to third co-host. I thought oh, I was yeah. just a, a meager guest. No, nope, <laughs> nope, today, your co-host. This is a momentous moment for me. This episode has been in the works for what feels like years. Years. <laughs> it's so true. It's finally happening. It is special. This and is a worth, very special episode. Yeah, it is. It is a very special episode. <laughs> I am in. I am in a wormhole of my feelings, being on a Zoom with Anna and Sam at the same time, and we are here to talk about one of our most beloved filmmakers of the era and one of his works. Anna, what have you brought for us to discuss today? I honestly can't remember whether it was you and Sam or whether it was me who suggested it. It was but you. It wasn't me? Okay, I'll take credit for that. Yeah, it was you. You were it like, is... oh, I know what I want to do. I think you were like, I either have to do ginger snaps or this. I think it, that was what you said. It is the epitome of sad girl horror. 2002. <laughs> Lucky McKee's kind of debut. And I mm. say kind of because it's not technically his feature film debut, but a lot of people count it as such. Okay. It's the film May, starring Angela Bettis. May. And you know what? Thank God this movie came out in 2002 because Angela Bettis is outstanding. And she was in two movies in 2002. And let not the record for her O2 be the bullshit Carrie TV movie that came out that year. Oh, my God. What What, a fucking slog. What a turd on fire. Also... I'm not I'm not going to utter the words justice for Carrie 20, 2002, but it was an attempted TV series of Carrie, which would have been interesting. I mean, I'm surprised we haven't gotten on that now in the post Chloe Moretz Carrie world. I'm surprised somebody. <laughs> oh, God. Like, I get it. We make hot girls unhot quote unquote all the time in movies but making chloe moretz drab carrie white was like are you fucking kidding me like don't stop insulting me i will say despite the writing of that her as an actor i liked her as carrie i like chloe moretz Oh no! Sorry, not that. I meant um, I meant the 2002 version. Angela oh no, Bettis. Angela, I mean, yes, Angela Bettis. Kind of, I was a just star. like, I, I think that she was able to like look at the material and be like, you know what? I can do something real here. So I will. I won't totally drag it because she is so spectacular, and she is so spectacular in May. Oh, just phenomenal. Just There's, so she's so sad. She's so emotional. Anna, as a as a correspondent as well. Anna's a Anna's a fucking film journalist. Anna is a I consider her the cornerstone of British film media. I don't know that she would fully co-sign me saying that, but I would absolutely not co-sign you saying that. But I appreciate it. I'm saying, and as an American person with a predominantly American audience, you guys don't fucking know. We don't fucking know. So as far as we're concerned now that the record has been established and as the cornerstone of British film media, um, Anna film, films programs film festivals. Anna works with the British Film Institute. Anna works with BBC. Um, she knows her shit. And Anna loves the 90s. And I want to hear a bit from you. There's something about Angela Bettis that feels mm-hmm. extremely pulled from that 90s star girl alt crowd of our Chloe Savignys, our Christina Ricci's, our um, Natasha Leones, and pull, I, it's such a fascinating thing for her to arrive in these early 2000s as, as a Carrie White and as a May. And it feels like she is, she is keeping us tethered to this era of horror right before it's about to get jettisoned into something entirely different in 2003 with like the post new TCM landscape and the, as we've discussed many times on this Michael Bayization of horror. She feels like a sort of bridge character. She 
it's interesting you mentioned that because she only ties me to the 90s because of the weird girl aesthetic of mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. of the kind of skinny old looking kind of beautiful but not in a traditional way kind of girl she doesn't she is a leading lady i think yes. she shines when she's in the leading role but she really becomes a leading lady with may i think and with carrie in this 2002 but for me she's actually that in between i've always kind of joked about that the 90s are a decade that lasts lasted 15 years so it Mm. ends in 2005 (laughs) and i think angela bettis is a perfect example of that because Mm. for me she lives in this in between of the late 90s and the early 2000s like she is for me winona Ryder's weird sister and i know winona kind of embodied the the aspirational weird girl with her role and look in Beetlejuice and um, well, in every single Gen X kind of young adult yes. movie that she ever in made. Reality since then. Bites, yeah. yeah, exactly. Even in Girl Interrupted, even though I know that yes. was set in the sixties, it still had a Gen X vibe about it. And yes. obviously, they shared. Um, Angela Bettis was also there in a supporting role as a as a young woman with an eating disorder in that in that particular. Um, psychiatric hospital that they were kept captive in Um, but yeah for me for me she's just because I came to Angela Bettis through May and through the other Lucky McKee uh, project that she did called Sick Girl we've covered on the pod we've covered on the pod and for me that's that's a feature film like I know it's part of an anthology series and all that but like those two films may and sick girl go hand in hand for me so i've always seen her talked about it i i love that you did because that's how we like that is the lens in which we looked at it through Mm -hmm. and i have to say the ending is like the ending of sick girl it's such a i view it as a happy ending in in the same way that the ending of may is a happy ending i'm not gonna jump ahead i agree (laughs) i really agree with that these movies are sisters Mm-hmm. And Lucky McKee, Lucky McKee is one of in in a in an era of such sameness that the two thousands became. He was such a beloved uh, champion of the weird, and yes. Angela Bettis wore that wore that costuming. And hell, maybe she's just a huge fucking weirdo in real life, but wore that costuming so incredibly well. And May. I feel like it was the first time I heard about May. It was, it wasn't, it was into the, it was late to, that was precisely, it was 2008. Because it was when I was Mm -hmm. interning at Rolling Stone. And another one of the interns asked me, like, uh, we were talking about horror movies. And she's like, oh, have you seen May? Now that's one of my favorites. And I had never heard of May before that point. And I watching, I didn't watch it even until years later. And it was such a, it was it almost felt so idio it felt so idiosyncratic in its presentation it was almost hard for me to keep it in my mind in the setting of the 2000s where we're still in like the the post scream halo we're still in like the kevinson kevin williamson authorial voice a lot of it before we're in like the real throes of the remake machine and it just it stands like it stands almost out as a time capsule, sort of even now to me, as mm. almost unplaceable within this very aesthetically defined era. So for me, what when the way that I discovered it was kind of completely wholesome and completely separate from where horror was in this particular. Yes, I was, and I actually probably. I can't remember what age I was. I was probably in my teens. Definitely was in my teens at this time. But I had a habit growing up in Spain, kind of being a closet film and horror nerd and DVDs being extremely cheap. I would go around to whatever the media shops were. There was tons of them about. And I would just browse the bargain section. Like anything that was for under like five euros, I'd probably just pick it up if the the title or the premise or just the cover drew my attention. And I remember picking up this DVD for like, I don't know, like a couple of euros or whatever that had this, you know, highly saturated portrait of Angela Bettis on it and it was just called May Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And there was a tradition in in a lot of countries in Europe, but in Spain in particular, of sort of translating the titles. And the translations are usually something over the top. It always involves like either the terror or the honor or something. <laughs> <laughs> the honor. <laughs> <laughs> and this was just May. And May is not a word. Like, I know it's it's not a word in Spanish. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, what is this? This like, why, are they, why haven't they even translated this? Mm-hmm. And I was so drawn by her face. Yeah. And it was like nothing I'd seen before. And I remember it completely clicking with me because of how lonely this character is. And I'm an only child. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time by myself growing up. And I was a very lonely child, but like constantly entertaining myself with things, with books, with films, with stuff. Also, I used to sew as a child, as in like I'd use like make dresses and stuff for dolls. Okay. Uh, which I have completely blocked away until just this very moment. <laughs> so I remember Listen, never who seen... Who hasn't made a jumper for a Beanie Baby? <laughs> <laughs> this guy has. <laughs> so. I was so thrilled with this character who mm. was so lonely and like found ways of creating whatever companionship that she needed. Mm-hmm. And not to like make it personal, but like I think it had other merits. I had just not seen horror films like that because without I didn't understand what the landscape was at that time. I didn't know what came first and what order because I would just watch things as I discovered them and build my own personal canon and horror landscape. Mm-hmm. But looking at it now with the knowledge, it's like it does stand out. It is strange for this era. This is not a horror film that belongs anywhere, really. I think, mm-hmm. if anything, it like now, if this had come out in 2022, it have it would have been like the talk of town at Sundance. Yeah, it would have been, you know, the new cult movie. It would have been like an A24 horror about a yeah. weird girl who makes herself a friend. Yeah, <laughs> but at that time, it was just strange and odd. And Angela Bettis has this appeal that doesn't quite fit in any particular era. She's got bits of the '90s old girl, but she's a bit too weird to be effortlessly cool, like your Chloe Sevigny or your Natasha Leone or your Winona yeah. Ryder. And she's a bit too, um, a bit too nice looking and. What's the word I'm looking for? A little bit too innocent and wholesome. I was going to say, and she's like too earnest to be Christina Ricci. that's the word. Yeah. Right. Who was like defined so much by her sardonic nature Mm -hmm. and by her sort of eye rolling at anything that was bullshit. I would. Sam. Yeah. I I would add, because I think the 90s of it is really, is really interesting to me. Because Mm -hmm. when I watch it, it feels like a movie straight out of new queer cinema. So Mm -hmm. looking back Mm -hmm. to films like, um, like Greg Araki's uh, Doom trilogy and mm-hmm. just anything that was like kind of like there was a lot of weird horror crossover of other genres in new queer cinema. And interestingly, there's a cameo. Well, not a cameo. There's a char- uh, an actor, James Duvall, who is in like every yes. Greg Araki film. And he shows up as the rocker with like the hair wax in that takes his shirt off and, mm-hmm. and uh, asks for ice for his nipples. And and so, like, even just aesthetically, the film feels like uh, you can see just the inspiration that came before it. But then when he showed up, I was like, okay, this has to be somewhat intentional, right? Like, Mm. it just the vibe of it. Um, That's you know, we can ask Lucky about this. You know, we can ask him. You know, the other sister film. (laughs) <laughs> you know the other sister film that you just made me think of that also has James Duvall in a very slight but pivotal supporting role? It's Donnie Darko. Oh my god, you're right. Oh my god. God. Yeah. May Darko. is the Donnie Darko for lonely girls in the same way as Donnie Darko <laughs> is the May for lonely boys. And you know, James and, Duvall, the prince of both. The I mean, prince <laughs> of both. <laughs> and truly, and like, and May being the, because there's just an insufferability quotient to Donnie Darko that does feel so much more lost boy than it does lost girl. I mean, I love both dearly. <laughs> very, very much. I so know. I, I, I from friend, the day that. that we do the Southland Tales episode, because oh it's going to happen. God. I can't wait. <laughs> We have we should, we have to wait. intentionally just make that a three hour episode. Like even if we don't want to, we just have to keep talking until we hit three hours. Force and ourselves then just, into it. Yeah, until we just fucking pass out or something. Like perfect. 
my god perfect um if i if i may if i yeah if i may may (laughs) (laughs) we're there Uh, 2002 was a really interesting time i was gonna say what what do we need to what do we need to know about 2002 (laughs) you know i'm thinking about it well yeah we have to because okay so when i first experienced the movie i worked at a video store um, I was at Hollywood mm. Video, very glamorous location in Tustin. And Your job that I only somehow this season have realized that you worked at Hollywood Video and that you didn't just work at Borders from the time you because, were employable okay. till I met you. To be fair, I started Borders in like 2004. Uh-huh. And so everything in 2004 on that we've covered in the pod, I was at Borders. But 2002, <laughs> that, little, that little sweetheart. <laughs> 2002, 2003, Hollywood mm-hmm. Video, baby. Yeah, I'm your video rental guy. So May, weirdly, had an entire wall, like or at least half a wall. Which you know, in video store days when we were stocking video shelves, half a wall only. Like you know, you would get one or two copies of every every movie that is like you know just an indie thing, like Ginger Snaps, one copy, right? Of course. But May comes in and we open the box and it's full of May. And I'm like, did, did I miss this wow. theatrical release? Yeah, did I, I miss this it. Warner Brothers blockbuster? I had never heard of it. And so I went in blind. Like, looking at that cover, I was like, what mm. could this be about? I thought May was a ghost movie because she was it so blown like out on the cover. like a ghost movie from yeah. that cover, yeah. Then watching it, I was like, well, maybe it's a killer doll movie. <laughs> because this doll seems to be coming to life. So going in totally blind and then getting to that ending, I have to say, at the time... I remember being disappointed because I loved the movie and I uh-huh. didn't love the ending. Now, interesting. as a 37-year-old watching it, I love the ending. And this is the difference. I grew up, and at that time, I was openly queer. Um, I identified as gay then. I identify as queer now. I was in a world where in the aughts, we were on such a binary. You were gay or you were straight. There is no fluidity or anything in between. And I think that my own loneliness that I identified and saw in May um, was reflected back to me in a way that was a little too real. And that Mm. ending felt so sad. And I wanted a happy ending because I wanted a happy ending for myself. Yes. And so Mm. I, I think that I didn't have the um, kind of like wherewithal to look at that moment and see what it was because we were so steeped in it in the early two thousands. And I, it, it's still it's it's almost like a choose you rom-com like in its in its ending like in the end mm-hmm. may chooses herself which i think is something we didn't really do at Definitely. the time um may doesn't settle may does well, not you're right She does not settle. She's bringing together fucking everything she wants Mm -hmm. in this real doll sitting on her bed. Because May didn't fit, doesn't, this is a movie to me about a woman who doesn't fit into either world. She's like trying the heteronormative route and she does not Mm -hmm. fit in. She's weird. She seems to fit much more into queer world, but she wants monogamy. So she's really surprised Mm -hmm. when that's not a part of that queer relationship. So being somewhere in between, she's like, well, where do I fit? Am I this or that? Because I think she's neither. I think she's both, right? And so her partner's yeah. both, or her perfect partner. And she's both. also she's also a woman who doesn't fit in the beauty standards. Not close mm-hmm. enough. I think mm-hmm. kind of the lazy eye uh, and the doll as an avatar for May, who is in this pristine box that her mother gifts her, and she cannot be touched. She cannot be played with. She actually cannot be connected with. Is essentially uh, an avatar for May. And yes. the fact that you know Angela Bettis is beautiful, but there is something about her that is just slightly odd which i think Mm -hmm. may really plays into and the lazy eye is just a really uh overt way of signaling you would be perfect but this thing so you're kind of defective so we're just gonna throw you away because you're not good enough it is so evident like even you know in her little in her kind of fantasy world where she talks about having a date with a random man that she just looks at at a bus stop Mm-hmm. It's like the minute she turns on him and she tries to flirt and he sees her lazy eye and instantly runs away. It's like it's such a childish but very, very sad way of her trying to connect. Like this world who's telling her, you're pretty, you're beautiful, like you fit into all of these like skinny white woman ideals. But uh, you've got the eye thing. It's just, I'm sorry, it's just not going to work. Let's just dump you over there like a defective <laughs> doll. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and, and then we have the character that she plays around with her, but in a way that it doesn't feel it. She's taking advantage of nerdy little May, Anna Ferris's character. Mm. But at the same time, she like when they are in a, when they are in like their quiet moment alone before May does her in. She does seem to be sincerely attracted to May. And, like, May is not, like, a cool fucking cucumber when she's hanging out with Anna Ferris. She is a Anna total... Ferris is into May. Anna Ferris is into Anna May. Anna Ferris is horny as hell in this movie. She is, she is, and and she is horny for May. There is a line yes. where Elton from Clueless... Uh, yes. Adam. Jeremy's Sisto. There's a line where Elton... <laughs> Says, Elton, you know, Elton. That, that he he's like, I like weird, right? Because it comes up more than once. And what we discover is he's kind of yeah. a poser of weird. He like shops at Hot Topic, yes. but he doesn't like actually listen to the music or something. So like, yeah. he is he's like he doesn't really like weird, but you know who really likes weird? Anna Ferris. Her she character loves weird. She at first like when May goes to prick her finger, and she mm-hmm. at first she's repulsed, and then suddenly she's turned on because she is like, holy shit, weird is my thing. And, and this woman is my thing. I love that. Yes. She, that, I, to me, I see that as a genuine relationship. I, I do too. I, I actually, the, the saddest part for me in this, in this movie was never the ending. It was when Anna Ferris has to die. Yes. Because I was like, I see a fucking future for these, these two very weird people who could just have a lovely, open relationship Where they, like, Anna does not have to fulfill every need of May's, and May certainly does not fulfill every need of Anna's, because she's got her hot girlfriend in the other room. And it just, like, it was like, oh, no, but there was so much potential for these two characters. Besides, May just came out of the laundromat where she's like, call me, Elton. You know what I mean? And then she comes (laughs) back, and then there's a friend over at at Anna Ferris's, and Anna's like, I remember at the time being like, this is, this is, this isn't fair. You know what I mean? Like, I was, like, in that <laughs> mental. But, like, looking at him, like, wow, she's an open communicator. She's not hiding it. She's like, hey, this is who no. we are. We are casually dating. Do you want to join? Like, Do I'm you like, want to oh join? God, this is great. She's, like, putting it all out there. Meanwhile, like, she was just like, hey, call me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, come on. I think, do you know what, though? I worry about Anna and May because I think Anna Faris in this in this movie is too hardcore for May. She May needed to be led softly by the hand. You are right, world. Oh, and yeah. I don't think Anna was gentle enough for her. You know what? That's I, fair. I mean, that's a that's, very fair that's statement. That's why she kills her. <laughs> You're right. She gently by the hand just welcomed past the threshold, and Anna was ready to just throw her into the twelve feet. I love Meanwhile, Anna. I am obsessed with Jeremy Sisto's poser character, Adam <laughs> Stubbs, for two reasons. Specific two <laughs> reasons, which I noticed on the rewatch. I mean, listen, there's two things. One where he's like, oh, I love gross. Disgust me. Oh, and then God. when she tells this very intense story from her veterinary clinic job, and there's just one shot of him kind of unable to eat a sandwich because he's so grossed out by real life kind of just anatomical stuff. <laughs> and and she's just happily munching into her sandwich. And then when he shows her her his incredibly pretentious like cannibal oh erotic movie, God. the final credit says in Italian, Reggio D. Adam Stubbs. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> your character is probably from fucking Ohio. What are you? Why are you putting your director credit in Italian? Love it, it feels like even now <laughs> that like that character was that character is so correct that you watch that even now and you're like, mm. oh, that is the majority of men who try to interact with me about movies on the internet. I can't believe that every film horror movie been the same yes. forever. People who think that, like, having seen a Serbian film is a personality and also means anything. <laughs> and not that just, like, you are free of taste in any way whatsoever. The thing that makes me crazy is he's that kid in your film class who, like, suddenly gets, I don't know, a Student Academy Award for something that's fine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because he has all the confidence of a handsome white man. And, you know, but film is a collaborative medium and he will never recognize that. No, you know what it is? It's like when you're in high school and you write a short story and someone dies at the end and you win an award for it. And then you think that's the best ending for every single thing you do in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, someone told someone told Adam he was pretty one time and (laughs) that like was all he needed to like walk the way my mom loved Jeremy Sisto. My mom loved 
like at, Jeremy's sister was a, a, an era babe. Um, mm-hmm. He's got that voice. The way my mom loved both Josh Hartnett and Jeremy's Sisto. And yet also like the pinnacle of hotness for my mom is the country star Dwight Yoakam who only has ever played grotesque villains in any movie. He's 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 like the worst guy in Panic Room. He's the abusive husband in Sling Blade. And my mom is just like, "Oof, that Dwight Yoakam." I'm like, "Your mom's telling you a story, friend. You better listen up." <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of it, Sam. I've been trying to pick through I lo- pick what through a the details. I love it. What a fucking I love it. I mean, I had intense crushes on both Jeremy Sisto and Josh Hartnett and Jake Gyllenhaal in circa 2002. Sad boys. Like, just the melancholy Mm -hmm. coming off of them. Oh, God. I can't imagine. He was (laughs) another 90s gem, 1995 Elton, right? And then we've got him in this. I will say, at the time, in 2002... I misunderstood who I thought the good person she should have chosen was, right? Like, I'm like, why mm. didn't she get with Elton? You know, and meanwhile, Anna Ferris is providing, like, honesty and, like, weirdness and acceptance and all that stuff. And I'm like, why doesn't she go with a guy who just got her hooked on cigarettes? You know what I mean? Like, I looked at that and I was like, like, guys. That is friends. such a 90s hangover mentality, Sam. Why isn't she with the guy who got her hooked on? Why isn't she with the Ethan Hawke in this movie? Friends at home, <laughs> there is a moment where they're at the laundry mat and it's like a meet cute and they and he teaches her how to smoke a cigarette which like look hey shout out to josh foster out there thanks for teaching me that was a very intimate moment and i'll never forget <laughs> it but listen i get it right i've never seen a movie actually do that so well where i was like oh mm. i know what she's feeling but uh-huh. then when he tosses her the pack and says practice <laughs> okay fuck you dude that's a lifetime oh. addiction you just handed her kind of hot though <laughs> gotta admit it yeah a little bit huh? it works. <laughs> no so, i will be the dissenting voice and i will shout no but oh. like looking at it through the lens of then i was like this guy's hot now i'm like this guy is bad news sam weinman what yes. were you thinking sam weinman specifically me and- well, like, and I, knowing that this every- guy falls asleep in a coffee shop, <laughs> this man is not to be trusted. Who I, does that? Anna, a thing you should know about Sam is that every every photo I see of Sam from his past is a different Sam Weidman. Every <laughs> single one of them. The Sam Weidman that smokes cigarettes, blue hair. I. I am sure it would be another like every time Sam posts a photo, anytime he posts a photo from his past on like Instagram or something, I look at it, I'm like, who's that person Sam knows? And I'm like, oh, that's another Sam Weinman. So I'm sure <laughs> if you posted this Sam, I would be like another person in that? Sam's past that is It's like an Sam. orphan oh. black tapestry of Sam Weinman. It is. It sincerely <laughs> is. Pre-rehab, I Sam Weinman was trying so hard. To, like I think like in my head I look like a member of Lincoln Park but out loud I look like a circus clown <laughs> like like it, it was a full I, w- I should have charged tickets at that point <laughs> every pillowcase in my house was purple because hair dye I mean what yeah. what a miserable experience okay I will so I I brought up 2002 a number of times without actually setting a context and I want to because I wanted to just specifically thinking about the binary because and monoculture. Mm. So like mm-hmm. in 2002 every move every TV show is it's like everybody saw the Osbournes that premiered yeah, in 2002. Yeah. Everybody was watching American Idol. I, I okay by the way I didn't watch either of those but by everybody I mean like most people. No, but everybody right? was. Everybody, and, everybody it, was. and even if you didn't watch it you knew it. Like when you saw Seed of Chucky and they had an Osborne's joke you were like, "Yep, I get that joke. I'm in." Because monoculture, right? And yeah. May was an alternative to that culture by showing up in a very big way while still being an indie movie. That itself was like kind of queer. I'm just just in a physical way. But like mm-hmm. Thinking in terms of what was happening that year for me and queer culture, 2002 was the year Rosie O'Donnell came out of the closet. Wow. That puts it in context because in 1997, when Ellen came out, she was, she lost it all, at least for a little bit. And Rosie O'Donnell Mm -hmm. had that same fear. So she waited until the last season of her show when she had a couple weeks left and then she came out. And I remember really resenting that because as a queer person, I was like, 
this could have changed people's minds. Looking back now, I see it's a small step towards it. But again, it's that binary. If you're queer, then you're not America's sweetheart. Mm-hmm. It was all this or that. And so uh, and even even with like M- 8 Mile came out that year, Eminem had a character that he – Eminem, who had used gay slurs, had written oh, yeah. really homophobic shit. Then he has a gay character in the movie that he defends. Mm-hmm. And it's like, are things changing? But don't worry. There's like five more albums that will show you that he's not. <laughs> yeah. But like we are – it feels like we're on the verge of something, but we're just not including it all yet. Like we're not looking at things as a spectrum. And I think that May – if she had been born like 10 years later, nobody would be dead. You know what? And I think bringing up Eminem right there is interesting. A frequent villain of this podcast, Eminem. Um, <laughs> frequent villain. And it's not just uh, because Mom spaghetti pop-up sucked. Eminem, Eminem, look, I know you listen to this podcast. We know you're out there. I know that you 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 listen to every episode because you can't get enough of us yeah, you're you you're hoping every episode you come back. But next time you come to LA, and are you, you saying do a pop Eminem up, has a humiliation kink? I I think I he's think into he it. Would well, he has to have a humiliation <laughs> kink for releasing that mom spaghetti. It was so gross. Okay, sorry. Please continue. No, I think it. I think that is a very. That is, I think that is. He's such a capsule in that way of like the the like the virulence of his homophobia specifically was one of his calling cards and the like well Eminem will be a homophobe on Maine and then he will like collaborate with Elton John kind of situation mm-hmm. like there was the and I feel like he was such a a lightning rod example like hyperbolic example intentionally over the top example of how homophobia was so proliferate in that era specifically in a way that was dissociated from the actual like hate crime of it like that you just called everything gay you just called anybody a fag if they were dumb like that it was just a normal way of dismissing something as stupid and it's not because you didn't like gay people or because you even thought about gay people but because the cool homophobia as we have discussed so many times was just so normalized in our vernacular that it was actually separated from in the minds of the people who used it it was inaccurately separated from the harm and the impact of that kind Mm -hmm. of language and the actual meaningful sentiment behind it there was this like you could separate the art from the artist by using the word fag kind of mentality when you super couldn't and this movie is a really rare example of just like may is not evil because may is queer and we have queer characters that do die but at the same time, our our villain, our protagonist, really, um, our anti-hero, her queerness is not the thing that drives her to any of this. It's it's simply like her needing to her needing to fit in a world that she doesn't fit within. Yes. And actually, the queer characters in this are quite wonderful. And the guy is far shittier than Anna. Like Adam is far shittier than Anna Ferris's character. So much shittier. She's not like a predatory bisexual or lesbian. Mm-mm. And, but, like, she has this emotionally unavailable shitty guy that's kind of the worst love interest in the movie. And it just is, it's, I will never not be impressed at just how intuitively decent Lucky McKee's movies were in an era where decency was anything but intuitive, especially in genre. It also seems like May never really struggled that much with the part of herself that is queer. No. Which I think is interesting. It yeah. was all, it was more of a struggle about is she this or is she that? You yeah. know, and I think the I sorry, Sam. No, no, don't please, please. <laughs> yeah. No, what I was about to say is that I think what's interesting is that she is so isolated from the entirety of the world and yeah. is so unaware of her place in it that I don't think she even thinks in terminology like straight or gay or queer. It is purely on the terms of affection. Mm. Like she is so starved for affection and connection that like if Anna Faris's character opens up this part of herself that feels right, that touches her in the right way, that is gentle and kind and warm to and wants her mm-hmm. for whatever weird creature that she is, that she is over the moon with that like that feels right and that's all she sees and that's all she cares about Mm -hmm. and it is no matter how kind of 
horny and sort of emotionally unavailable in her own way, but honest about it, Anna Faris is mm -hmm. in this movie. She's also, she's done all the steps. She knows exactly who she is, how she works, how she, how she can pull women, who she likes, what she's attracted to. May has not done any of that work yeah. and she's not being led by gently by the hand. <laughs> yeah. that work. She just assumes in this really childlike way. Oh, she kissed me. We had sex. I don't think she even understands what sex is. Mm. Like it is such a childlike kind of approach to intimacy mm -hmm. that when she then appears on Anna Faris' doorstep, kind of expecting, kind of leaning in to replicate the things that they had done in the previous scene. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, no, not right now. I'm fucking someone else. It's like, wait, what? I don't. But yeah. me. But I was that person. I'm not that person anymore. I don't get it. You don't yeah. like me anymore. That's the binary that she exists in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so Oh, it's tender. so sad. <laughs> it is so tender. Because Anna's not like, I'm fucking this person. You have to go away forever. She's just like, I'm busy. I'm booked right now. But like. Yeah, like wait your turn yeah like can, like, we, can we can we hang out later I yeah the doors <laughs> the doors gonna be open like just like give me a give me this part of the day <laughs> until i'm done and even even break what i like about that is it speaks to the binary of the binaries around her right and it's not mm -hmm. just when i it, am i gay or straight because obviously i don't i don't even believe in that answer but like I, I think that in a world like 2002 specifically where all of your choices are rigid, where you have a predominant culture that's like these are the shows you watch. This is the music that's the top 40. This is what's on TRL. It's like the the illusion of choice, right? Like we're calling into Total Request mm -hmm. Live and voting for our top 10 songs. <laughs> but it's but you know then movies like Josie and the Pussycats totally satirize that illusion of choice because mm -hmm. we were in an age where we are told this is what everything just is mm -hmm. with this goes back to Eminem god I can't believe I just said that but I listen, know right wow going back to Eminem the like, presence of Eminem on this podcast Eminem. and Friday the 13th 2009 in this season shocking <laughs> to no one more than me I, I cannot believe it um I but but thinking about that Elton John performance right like this is what it is to be queer but it's also kind of what it is just to be a person in 2002 like where you have to take the parts that work for you and leave the rest because there's so much toxicity and may mm -hmm. is a person who is looking at these partners and literally taking the parts that work for her because that's what she has to do because she's given this mm -hmm. set of choices and nothing quite fits maybe because she doesn't fit but mm -hmm. it's it that to me is kind of a beautiful representation of what was happening mm -hmm. at that time Anna, what's happening at that time in Spain? What's what's the what's the Spanish? That is such a good question. Monoculture oh my God. of 02. What what's high school like in 02 for you? Tell us. Oh gosh, I mean, I'm gonna have to go purely an autobiography here because yeah. I have no clue what was going on in Spanish pop culture at the time. <laughs> so I always Anna is a citizen of is... the world. She is of many nations. Perhaps though the. This may be the reason why, and I'm trying to travel back in time to who I was in 2002. Um, perhaps this film spoke to me on a very emotional level because as you've just beautifully described, Sam, May is taking the bits that she likes to form. And I think, you know, without jumping too much to the ending, to form an avatar of herself that she considers perfect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like the perfect bits of people that she sees in the world. And like Frankenstein monstering this like ideal version. It is a friend, but it is also essentially a perfect version of her because she's mm -hmm. always been deemed imperfect. But to answer your question, no clue. Can't I can't remember. I like I can't remember what was going on last week, let alone what was going on in two thousand and two Spain. But my my I'm like a lifelong immigrant, so I was moved to Spain as a very young kid and grew up in between two very, very radically different cultures. Just my parents are Russian. I grew up in Spain. And I went to a school where I was surrounded by both Spanish kids and kids from different countries. So I was also cherry picking bits of culture mm. that spoke to me mm. and that I liked and that could essentially create the person that I would become as an adult mm -hmm. and that I was enjoying. And that translated both in books, movies, shows. So there's like bits and pockets of Spanish pop culture that I loved of like Russian culture that I liked very little of that to be honest um, <laughs> and then like American and British culture that I loved 
from watching films and reading books and stuff like that so there's weird pockets of knowledge that i just concocted into this frankenstein monster of obsessive pop culture nerd that make absolutely no sense like i knew <laughs> i watch every single season and knew every single episode of my heart of moesha and young yes, Moesha. And like <laughs> And like a Spanish uh, dance uh, teen shows that was airing at the time, like and May at the same time. So none of it actually makes any logical sense. It is specific to the Frankenstein monster of cultures that I was creating for myself because I enjoyed it for what it was. Now, did um, your did did your monstrosity of culture? Did you did you have a did you have a home amidst? What was the sort of social home you found among people in assembling this like grab bag of like greatest hits? W was it s people similarly uh, forming their own sort of, you know, Technicolor dream coat of influences? Or were you like slipping into other people's other people's monoculture experiences and like hanging out with them on their on those terms? So the sad answer to that great question is that I didn't okay. have anyone who was Frankenstein monstering their own culture. So I had to slip into different people's worlds at a moment's notice based on what that was. If I was going out to dinner with my parents, then I was cosplaying a Russian girl. If I was <laughs> hanging out with my like very few school friends who were Spanish, then I was cosplaying a Spanish teenage girl mm -hmm. and like if I was in any other environment and I bounced between different subcultures like I was on the punk scene I was in the hip-hop scene I was in the goth <laughs> scene Barcelona is <laughs> very small so like everything kind of mingled like interplayed together okay I was then like very into the indie scene and then eventually I emerged of that somehow an adult uh, with <laughs> strange tastes but the fact of the matter is that like it is an isolating experience, I think, being a, a child of immigrants growing up in a, in a different place. And that just makes you adapt very quickly. So as much as I was creating my own weird kind of sense of, of place uh, that eventually led me to the sort of work that I'm doing now, I've somehow like fooled everyone into making this into a career because i just uh, you are the cornerstone the of british film media so believe me you are and the genuine article started Anna. it all started by me memorizing all the credits of saved by the bell for fun. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but i think that's kind of you know to bring it back to may and without like making it entirely too personal i think that's one of the things that really connects anyone who's gone through any version of that experience of I need to fabricate or find a version of myself by cherry picking the things that different groups of people think is good mm. about me and the journey that kind of the you know you referenced earlier Jordan that kind of May is like a self-empowerment rom-com in a way where she <laughs> chooses herself yeah like it is that, but for everyone who's been told, well, this is great about you, but everything else kind of messed up, kind of fucked up, that doesn't work, you should change it. But what if yeah. you can change everything about yourself? And why should you change everything about yourself? So in a way, like when she fabricates that avatar of herself, she's choosing the bits that she, everyone else thinks it's perfect, but that creature does not come to life until she gives it the part of herself that she's always hated. But there's the thing that makes her may which is her lazy eye. The moment she rips it out is when oh. the creature comes to life. Oh my God. And it's her finally wow. realizing that the thing that everyone has told her is wrong about her is actually the thing that makes her, you know, for lack of a better word, unique. <laughs> Anna, I, the, that was so nice. I wanted to ask about the more perfect self part because I hadn't seen it that like I just had it not it hadn't even occurred to me that she was creating essentially yeah a, a better version of her or is or a more perfected one that's so interesting with the eye that is she plays around with the with the letters of her name right there's yeah. a shot of oh her God. putting the name on the on the monster afterwards where it's May and she plays around and she creates Amy Wow. And it's like essentially right. her herself, but perfected. I love that. And I love that the perfect, I love that the perfect version of, the perfect version of her is an amalgamation of genders and parts. Yes. Like, mm -hmm. That like her, her physical self and presentation in the world, she doesn't, mm -hmm. when she's like building her ideal body, she's not just like taking Anna Ferris 
and like mm. tacking some things on. Yeah. And like, you know, just some like slim white hottie. She's mm-hmm. it's is building uh, something that is in and of itself outside of the bounds of like understanding mm-hmm. and definition and is like, oh, finally I got it right. Like finally, like my ideal is in front of me and this is my companion. This is my mirror. And mm-hmm. it is heinous by any observable measure. But to me, it is ideal. And I think that's a really cool mm. thing for her to have done. Well, it's like a more understanding and beautiful version of Frankenstein, right? Mm -hmm. The actual Mary Shelley story, not Mm -hmm. like every single horror film iteration of it. But what happens in Frankenstein is when Victor Frankenstein creates the monster, he's so horrified by his own creation that he rejects it, which is essentially, you know, the most hurtful possible thing for the monster is essentially like a newborn in this in this scenario is being rejected by your creator by your parent you know let's mm-hmm. like go big as like being rejected by your god but in this case may creates this creature who by other like horror film standards is an abomination yeah yeah but she loves it so much so when that creature wakes up it wakes up with the most tender movement of just a <laughs> hand patting her on the head and it's like the more earnest more understanding version of frankenstein where dr frankenstein creates and loves the creature that he creates she creates in this case what a like perfect 100 years later like this is where we were and this is even if it's not necessarily where we are but it's where we could go like mm-hmm. where you have the you have the metaphor for the monster as like for, as queer and as shame and mm then to headcanon oneself into it is to identify with the shame and be like, I understand this ostracization. I understand this alienation. Like, are you a wolf man kind of, kind of queer? Are you an invisible man kind of queer kind of shit like that? And being like, but what if taking the thing of like, but I identify with the monster because like the monster is also a big, powerful wrecking ball. And I feel a sense of like autonomy and strength through being identified with this thing that is like a, a, a wrecker of people's lives. And versus that is being like, but what if you would identify with the monster because the monster is the beautiful thing that you don't have to turn into some sort of avatar of your own destruction of others to take take out your pain onto them and just be like, but what if we just recreated the monster as equally as horrific more horrific but just like a friend but just like a an actual an actual agent of of love and comfort what a smart thing beautiful film i love sam is just like tenderly smiling right now because it's so beautiful i just i i I know i care a lot about this film it's something that like when i was making when i was working on the queer horror doc i Mm -hmm. this specific film was something i i I wanted to make sure that we were able to focus on and you know, mm-hmm. hopefully they will. Um, but it just, um, it, hearing this analysis and, and, and looking at it through this gentle light, it's just like, <laughs> I love it. Light. Like, like friends who haven't seen it, like we're talking about a scene where May literally gouges her own eye out and puts it yeah, in a, in, in a Frankenstein monster sewn together of other people's body parts, some of whom we've cared about. Pre- yeah. And, uh, it's a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's a happy ending for May. And it May is, is the one we care about the most. I, I have to ask, and I know that this is not this is not beautiful. Can we just all just agree that Anna Ferris's girlfriend though in this was straight? Like Anna Ferris was dating a straight girl. <laughs> This is not beautiful. I was like, no, no. That girl, that girl, who is the real psycho in this scene? That girl goes into somebody else's fridge, opens up a paper milk carton, puts her mouth on it, and drinks milk? No. <laughs> she is a psycho. She's a shitty, she's a she's a shitty boyfriend. She's a shitty boyfriend. Right. She is. <laughs> she's just a gender swap shitty boyfriend. Yeah, she's yeah. just a gender swap shitty boyfriend. That is like that is such a incredible like thing of watching this like talking so much about movies from this era and and hearing like you know the ways of relating things ways connecting to stuff and being like wow movies really really have a responsibility out there man and not in the sense of like people need to like censor their art and shit like that but just like man we really do we watch things that Joss Whedon made and think Xander Harris is a good idea. And then like, (laughs) and then like a generation of people are fucking brainwormed into thinking that that 
is like a cool guy that that's Mm. like a sweetie a good friend and then that carries through obviously into shitty best friend in the my super psycho sweet 16 Mm -hmm. series like how long were we terrorized by that shitty character and then if you gender swap it in that doesn't make it better just because it's like, oh, no, all you did was just make the fuck boy a girl. Like, and there's w- this like, straight line between Xander Harris and Seth Cohen, and they're oh, equally yeah. shitty. Fuck one Seth Cohen. One of them Cohen. is just better looking. Fuck Seth Cohen <laughs> from day one to now. Ryan was always my guy. <laughs> Little cutie, like a tiny Russell Crowe. <laughs> and I think it's a tiny Russell Crowe. The only the one of like two straight character two straight relationships I've ever really rooted for Ryan and Marissa, <laughs> uh, justice for. When it comes to Xander and just kind of like taking how how much this stuff informed who a lot of us became, it it reminds me of the importance of the video store and I and I want to share something oh, that I, we haven't mm. talked about before because it's like yes I talked about working there and I think that a lot of times when we. When we when we discuss the video store, the nostalgia is for, you know, taking something home and committing to watching the whole thing and coming back. Or that <laughs> the feeling you get when you go to the shelf and like, is the movie I want in? Like and, and so <laughs> yes. when it's like, well, why would you want to bring back the video store? It you can't. Because that those elements can't exist in an era where we have access to everything. But I think there's one missing component that doesn't come up a lot. And it's that as kids, this was our library. This was our, we didn't have the internet in the way that um, the internet exists Mm -hmm. now. We didn't have access to information and culture and other places. I mean, definitely not our school system. You know what I mean? Like we're not getting what we need. So we would go to the video store and we would find our own weirdness and see it embraced in films like May. And also be able to Mm -hmm. access examples of other people. Like honestly, being like, 18 years old and being able to see a movie that depicts Anna Ferris as just a person who is an option to be in a relationship with, we mm. just, there's nowhere else I was going to get that kind of affirmation. Mm. And so I, I do want to tie, like going back to that half a wall of May at the video store, it's like the video store um, allowed for me to pick and choose, to go to mm. a shelf, pull something off mm-hmm. and find a part of myself. What I find most fascinating about the video store as a concept, because I ha- I had a video store, but it was very much not the the iconography of right. the American video store. Mm-hmm. It was much more impersonal, but still, it did exist. It was a physical space where I could go and rent any movie I wanted. And then it became this weird automatic box where you did the same thing, but through a screen, and then it spit out a DVD, and then you gave back the DVD through the yeah. box. Anyway, it was it was just as impersonal, but I guess slightly more efficient, and they could house more films. In any case... The thing that I love about that space that we just kind of have in a different way now because we have access to everything is the canonless aspect of it. It's the fact mm-hmm. that there was no one there telling yes. you that this is the right thing to watch yes. and this is the trashy thing to watch. You are so, so you, right. You could have May and like eight and a half side by side. I mean, what mm-hmm. would they be? Because it would alphabetically not work. But like, Staff recommends, right. baby. for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> you literally are <laughs> describing the Staff Recommends at Hollywood video. My manager loved eight and a half. <laughs> whatever Terrible. whatever the, the right. system was at every single space like you still had the freedom to roam around and like pick mm. out as many whatever yes. random selection you wanted whatever yeah. is the thing that attracted you the most the cover the description the oddness of a film the genre of it a particular actor or actress so you created your own canon there was nobody telling you this is wrong which for anybody who feels like they are wrong in the world that's constantly in one way or another telling them that there's something wrong about them is such a place of freedom when you're like actually this is a place where i get to create the rules the library the palace of what feels right and looks right and connects with me and nobody else can tell me i'm wrong you know, I... This is why... You see why I just love Anna too much, Sam. Anna, I, it's making me wish I interviewed you in our video store. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> on, the, on the first iteration of this doc, I, 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 mm. I, shot, I created a video store that was all horror movies. And yeah. 
and it was just really, it was a really cool looking set it was, it was it awesome was such a cool set and everybody would walk on and you could smell the tapes like we used real vhs's so <gasps> yes. it was like mm-hmm. i mean it was like and we would i would always ask people about their connection to the video store and time and again the thing that came up was that leveling like anything could be on the shelf mm-hmm. next to anything else and i know mm-hmm. personally as a queer viewer that is something but also just as a film person <laughs> it's like we are constantly told what is and isn't uh worthy right especially mm-hmm. with horror from this era yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's like people would have us throw it all away <laughs> you know and I, I don't know i just it's so special being able to talk about the video store especially after that because i know I, i'm pretty sure it's not going to show up in the final thing and uh but it has my heart mm-hmm there's a whole nother story in there, Sam. I think everyone, whatever the iteration of the video store has become, um, and I think actually, interestingly, podcasts are a new, different iteration of that. Oh, interesting. Um, of that version. I, I, There was someone who came up to me, a young woman, directly after the show last night. And I've heard this multiple times from many young women through, like, who've come up to me and just said, thank you so much for letting me feel like I can watch horror movies, which is such a beautiful thing to hear. But I'm like, I know exactly what you mean Mm -hmm. because in one way or another, the constant thing that you get told in cinephile circles and in horror circles in particular is, well, if you haven't seen this, you're not allowed. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. You can't call yourself a fan or you can't call yourself a cinephile or whatever the fuck word you want to use if you have not done, like, check these boxes. Even and Adam like, does that so in the movie. Simple. He's like, you haven't seen Trauma yeah. in May? Yeah. yeah. He is yeah. that shitty dude. I was like, just say, oh, let's see Trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see whatever. Or it's like, oh, here it is. You should like watch it if you're into this. Yeah. You what might an like exciting this. thing that you get to experience this for the yeah. first time. Wow. And I've been in so many rooms with old fashioned programmers who have been like, well, you know, we're not going to screen this because it's too new or because, you know, people will have watched it already or we must screen this because it's a masterpiece. And I'm like, how is this inviting to anyone at all? And like, this is why people like feel afraid of older movies or, or older cinema or the vastness of like a genre because they're like, I just want someone to guide me or to tell me, like, oh, this is this kind of thing, and I can decide what I want, which is exactly the thing that video stores allowed us to do, but kind of silently in yeah. our own heads. It would be like, I'm going to walk around and see what draws my attention. And I think in the same way, podcasts are kind of doing the same thing. You kind of shop around, you listen to the things you're into, and then there's voices. Like, there's people who usually, the ones you connect with the most are the ones who will be like, this is great. I think you'll enjoy this if you like this. You can make those connections yourself. And once again, it just does not tell you. It does not tell you off for not having seen the film already. Never. Which is so important. Like, I don't want to get fucking chastised because I haven't seen, like, a Ghibli movie or whatever. It's like, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. The more you chastise me, the less I want to watch it because now it feels like homework. (laughs) There used to be this... um... Oh, God, two two references. But The Yellow Pages being a giant book of people's telephones. My God. can't believe we just <laughs> handed that, that out. Explaining <laughs> the Yellow Pages. Right? Well, there was a Yellow Pages for movies called The Video Hound. And it, every year it would release an edition. And we would get a copy at the video store, not for other people to see, but for us to be able to recommend things to people. Oh, and okay. what is so special about it is you could look up words like road trip and below it, it would just be all road trip movies, right? <laughs> That's really fun. And it, 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 I, I used to go through that and I would pick words and I would just watch every movie in that category. Like I specifically mm-hmm. did that with gay. I, spe- I did that with the word threesome. I did that. Like I went through mm-hmm. all of them. That's how I discovered a road trip movie with Rachel Lee Cook. But that's a whole other thing. You know, it's, it's, and you could look up actors and just watch all their work. It's pre-IMDb, yes. right? But, like, the point is, mm-hmm. there was no star rating next to it. It was just, right. here's the movie. And then you wander to the shelf. And it's like, again, it's like, if you are looking for this, here's a whole other world. And there's an explore, uh, an exploration to that. Like, by not invalidating mm-hmm. a choice before I pick it up, I get to discover yeah. on my own who I am or what I like. Um, and interestingly, at a time when there is a predominant culture... I got to mm-hmm. make my own taste within that culture. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think that is I think 
we have put together a beautiful bow for on which to to put on top of this episode well can i ask you one question before you wrap up jordan yeah because i know you love los angeles horror this movie how did this movie read for you i the thing about me is like my i never had a romantic sense of new york the way that pop culture i think largely reinforces and like you know whatever the appeal of that place is that I love visiting and, and lived in briefly and is fine. And it was perfectly wonderful. I always had that romantic ideal about Los Angeles, but not because I thought it was a perfect place because there was something weird or fucked up or just so expansive about it that it just like seemed like a dream. And my whole thing on L.A. and, and its allure and, and what I love about it so much is that New York has its – it's not a competition between the two, but they're just, like, the, the coastal polarities. Um, New York has that mentality of, like, if you can if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Like, fuck you, mm-hmm. I'm walking here. Like, it's, it's honesty is its thing. And L.A. is not just the film industry. It is a huge, expansive place filled with many different lives – many different jobs it is not just hollywood but when you think of it in the hollywood context it is a town built on a lie that everyone knows is a lie and yet is so powerful and so compelling that people will willfully either suspend their belief in that it is a fiction or they will work so hard to know that they are the exception that it is worth going and pursuing the dream and the fact of a place being so obviously accessibly able to see that it is a fucked up normal big you know ordinary city in that way and yet the idea of it is still so powerful to get you to think like no but like no it's gonna work for me like i'm gonna be the exception that is fucking amazing that is fucking power and you watch a movie like may and you see like another fucked up story in like a fucked up like ordinary street of Los Angeles and you're still like yeah but like my LA is gonna be beautiful like yeah no but like my LA is gonna be like a fucking gem in my hand it could be filled with maize and hey for better or worse and it could be filled with maize and he would still be like no it's gonna be the exact place and time and town that I need it to be when I want it to be when I have to have it be that and that is an incredible fantasy that like Mm. That's why that's why LA to me is the truly romantic place. Beautiful. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but yeah, Anna, Anna, thank you, thank you for so much, Anna. spending this time. I've been with doing us. this so much, guys. I'm, I gotta like, re- I gotta record enjoy. twice with Anna this week, everybody. I'm on cloud nine. Um, I was just editing you right before we jumped into the, <laughs> into the recording, and I was like, I'm gonna double Jordan this week. I I sit and, and I just pull up old I just pull up old episodes of of Pod and things I've done with you when I'm just like I just want to hang out with this person who's not with me right now. So <laughs> too, I completely understand that. Oh God, yeah, no, you get the text, Sam. Like, man. That Melody Paris episode, that was gold. And it's like, we're talking about a Christmas episode in fucking July. Um, (laughs) Hey, you can't move midnight. And um, (laughs) I do that too in the Final Ghost podcast. I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to counter program. Here's some Christmas movie shit. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, if we do, if we knew another very special Christmas season. Oh, you have to uh, then. I I consider you, I consider you on, on a lineup. Uh, to join us but uh if you would like to tell direct people to anything please let us know the people where they can find you so the easiest way is probably my twitter and instagram accounts both are at anna be demented and i publish the horror film history podcast the final girls we're currently on hiatus in between seasons the new she just uh, had an extensive teen horror season it was 40 episodes of oh Teen Horror. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Never doing that again. Fuck those kids. Fuck <laughs> them all. But a great season nonetheless. It we've was. We've also done female monsters. We've done vampires. We've done witches and planning. I've already got the next two planned out. So oh, I'm excited. excited to start recording those. I hope um, I, I will let you for whatever those Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna drop you a message straight after this to let you know what they are, Drew. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find you can listen to me on the Final Girls podcast. Um, I 
there's a whole bunch of programming stuff that I'm doing. Uh, some of it in London and across the UK. And also I'll be at Fantastic Fest. I'm not sure what this is dropping, but I've also been programming for Fantastic Fest this year. So I'll be there oh in my Austin gosh, that's so cool. for the festival. Yeah, it's been really fun. And I do a lot of like other podcast guest appearances and radio bits and I usually remember to post them on my Twitter account. Oh, and I also, I'm really terrible at self-promotion. I write, so, so whenever yes, I does. write or publish something, I post it on my Twitter account. And I've got a book coming out next year, which is all about unlikable female characters. Oh my God, is what? This, I feel like this is the first time I've recorded with you where you could like say that out loud. When when does it come out? Oh, I'm like where? full, I'm full on starting the promotional Where cycle. can I pre-order? Okay, Begins okay. Now. Unlikable right. female characters, that's the gayest thing I've yes. ever heard. Where? <laughs> I need it. It's that's the name of the book. <gasps> it's coming out next year in the US and the UK. Oh my god. Um, so <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so glad you can finally share. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know when this the... is going out, but I'm going on the aggressive promotional cycle. I remember Everyone... we did the screen drafts together no. about actions. You were like, no, I can't bring that up. Like, it's it's not time for that. So this is very good news. Can, I we're starting wait. here. Unlikable female characters that women pop culture wants you to hate. I've I've read it. I'm a big <laughs> fan. She has read, read it. it. I'm a big fan. I'm a yeah. big fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Um, I told you guys she's the cornerstone of English. I'm film excited. Media. I'm already starting. I've already started work on the next one, which will be all about horror. Oh, good. Oh, good. I hope we'll find me back in there. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love this so much, guys. Thank you so much for making me rewatch this movie. That was You're so so like dear to my heart and i haven't watched it in a number of years i watched it last time on the big screen at the bfi which is the british film institute here in london and i'd never seen it on a big screen before and it was a full screening it's beautiful it's so (laughs) wonderful it's it's such a joy to rewatch this movie sam did you want to sign off uh yeah, you can find me at sam weinman uh you could watch my movie the quiet room if you haven't yet uh and you could uh you could you could tweet me about this episode just tell me your favorite part i love when you guys do that <laughs> <laughs> he does we text it's really about fun it. i actually i screenshot we... them and send them to jordan <laughs> like a mom yeah. i'm just like well it's i love it's you guys Will, we we've recently had willa ford week so there's oh a lot God, to willa talk ford about week. there's a lot i to hope share. it never ends turn into willa ford month willa ford yeah, year willa, week. <laughs> willa year she well she deserves what at least one back um, willa ford ever um <laughs> jordan what about you where can we find you uh you can find me on twitter at jorcru j-o-r-c-r-u uh and listen to the feeling scene podcast do that a lot and uh listen to disaster girls because that's fun too and then i can't wait to record more botcast one day with uh beloved margot friend of the show thanks everybody thank you anna thank you both this has been wonderful